Jesus is better. That's the message of the book of Hebrews, and we find ourselves in our Lord's Day morning sermons, having completed 19 sermons going through the first four chapters of the book of Hebrews. We're about to start chapter 5. And I thought it'd be good to just pause for reflection, to see the landscape of what we've traversed so far, what we've seen so far, and to do that is a monumental task because how can you summarize 19 sermons in a little short space of time? I don't think you can, but I'm going to walk us through some of the highlights, and I'll certainly be missing some of them because, as I say, there's so much we've already covered, but it's helpful to see the forest and then see the trees. It's so important we see the big picture as we're walking through verse by verse expository sermons on the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. That's the theme. Also, the high priestly ministry of Jesus is better in so many ways, and that's what we're going to see in the upcoming chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. That's the theme. That's where we're going. The message of Hebrews, there's nothing to go back to. As I look at some of the sermon titles of the 19 so far, that was the first one. There's nothing to go back to. Scholars believe, and I believe rightly so, that the book of Hebrews, the epistle to the Hebrews, was a sermon. And it was exhorting those who were professing faith in Christ to hang on, to keep the faith, to not throw away their confidence. They have strong encouragement to endure. And yet, in the visible realm, in the physical realm, there was not much they could look at that was a sense of grandiose fulfillment of anything. They were a small, it seems, huddled group suffering much persecution. And in the first century, when Hebrews was written, many believe it was written before AD 70 with the temple still in operation, probably around 64 to 68 AD. Uh, That's the timing of this. The Christians, the followers of Jesus who were Jewish, were under great stress to give up the faith because they are now facing persecution. They are being thrown out of the synagogue. And in first century society in Israel, that's everything. Think about that. You can't go to the synagogue. You are now thrown out as an active member in society. And to follow Jesus had consequences, just as it does in our day. But it was especially vicious in the first century. And to understand Hebrews is to understand this small community, perhaps this was a literal sermon written, that was encouraging people, don't give up. What you see is not all that there is. That's so, so important we grasp that. Hebrews 11 is all about faith, the ability to endure as seeing him who is invisible, as Moses did. Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And your faith 
is vital. Don't throw away your confidence. This uh, anchor of the soul, hold on. Let, let the, 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 the Lord Jesus keep you by you staying part of the Christian community, following Jesus no matter what the cost, because there's nothing to go back to. Imagine being a, a huddled group, following Jesus, and everybody outside of the meeting is against you. And you are losing privileges by following Jesus, likely to be thrown out of the synagogue. That's everything. And so the writer is exhorting the professors of Christ to endure. Now, in any sermon, there are the saved and the unsaved listening. There are the wheat and there are the tares. And so not everybody under the sound of the preacher in any day, in our day, in their day, in any day, not everybody is a true follower of Jesus. But people can be in and around the church, so to speak, and hearing the message, looking like the real deal, but not being the real deal. And so the message is, don't throw away your confidence understand the enormity, the magnitude of who Jesus is, and you'll realize there's nothing back in the synagogue you want. Everything that was prophesied has been fulfilled in Jesus, and everything in the synagogue is lesser, is inferior to what you have in Christ. Though in outward terms, that certainly doesn't seem to be the case. They're the ones enjoying privileges in the community. You are this huddled group, but see what earthly eyes cannot see. Jesus Christ in his high priestly ministry, what he's done and what he's doing at the right hand of the Father is superior. He's better than anything you can conceive and see that through the eyes of faith. There's nothing to go back to. I remember an old song. Oh, there's nothing to go back to. Oh, praise God, I have heaven in view. I'm too near my heavenly home to turn back now. I tell Satan, get thee behind. No turning back in me you'll find. I'm too near my heavenly home to turn back now. That's the message of Hebrews. And it starts with the understanding that God has spoken, not only in ages past, but ultimately in his son. Hebrews chapter 1, let me read the first few verses here. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's a mouthful. 
long ago at many times and in many ways, all the diverse ways God spoke in, old, in the Old Testament era, the Old Covenant era. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's something that is established. That's something that everyone would know. But there's a but in verse 2, and it speaks of God speaking in an ultimate sense and a final sense. But in these last days, he's spoken to us in his Son, by his Son. And the message here is, you've heard through Jeremiah, the word of the Lord. You've heard through David, the word of the Lord. All of the Old Testament is ringing in your ears. But there's an ultimate message in the Lord Jesus Christ and reject him and God has nothing more to say to you. That's the message. God has spoken ultimately in his son, by his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the next phrase, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. Jesus is heir of everything. He will inherit everything. It may not look like that now, but he will. And he's also the creator of the world. This is Jesus Christ. He's going to inherit everything and he made everything. Now, normally you think the order would be he created everything and then he will inherit everything. But the thrust of Hebrews is always forward. He's going to get everything. That's the first thing. He's inheriting everything everything. He's the heir of all things. He's also the creator. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is Jesus Christ. And the message of Hebrews is this. If you are tempted to go back to the old, you don't understand who Jesus is. If you understand he's the fulfillment of everything prophesied and portrayed in types and shadows in the Old Covenant, and you want to go back there, you don't know who Jesus is. He's the heir of everything. He's the creator of everything. And this universe is being upheld by the word of his power. That is who the Lord Jesus is. And if you and I understand the message of Hebrews, we'll never be attracted by any cult, any Christian group that would diminish the deity of Christ or the humanity of Christ. And the book of Hebrews teaches both of those themes very, very strongly. God has spoken by his son. He's unique. Uh, he, he has, in, in terms of, how, I, I have to just even pause. How do we even say in words the uniqueness of Christ? You can't put Jesus on the same level as any other human being. Name the religious leader. Doesn't matter. He's not going to inherit everything. He's not the creator of everything. And he's certainly not upholding everything. But Jesus is. After making purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of high, on high. Uh, that's where the writer is going to take us. Who, who's the writer? We, we don't actually know. Uh, many names have been suggested, Paul, Apollos, some others. In the end, it doesn't really matter. All we know is the Holy Spirit used someone to write the book of Hebrews. And, and we, we understand it is very much a, a sermon. It takes about 
45 minutes to, to read and the author calls it a short word of exhortation. I love that. <laughs> After making purification for sins, he sat down and the thing that would be obvious to everyone there is no high priest in Israel ever sat down because his work was always ongoing. One day every year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the great high priest of Israel would go into the very presence of God and make an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people of God, the people of Israel. But he'd be back next year, uh, either him or someone else. Uh, the high priest didn't live forever. And it could be the first and last time he did this, or he'd have... Uh, eight different times he would do this, or maybe a little bit more, but there would come a time when a new high priest would need to take the place of the old, but never, ever, ever did any one of them sit down after making their offering, their sacrifice. But Jesus, not making 18 sacrifices, or 36, or 54, but one sacrifice for sins sat down right there at the gate. The obvious is upon the people. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the showing forth of God in his glory. He's upholding the universe and by his sacrifice he was able to purify a people for himself and sat down. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And verse 5 goes on, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? The obvious answer is, God never said that to any angels. Or again, I'll be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. God never said that to any angel. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. We know that to worship anything or anyone other than God is blasphemous in the extreme. But in verse 6, we're told the Father says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, verse 7, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, notice the contrast of Jesus with angels. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. There it is, full deity in resplendent view. The scepter of, right, of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And, quoting the Old Testament, of course, Here's another one, verse 10. You, Lord, this is speaking of the Son, God the Father has said, let all the angels of God worship him. And still speaking of the Son from verse 8, of the Son, he says, and there's a quotation, and verse 10, which tells us the word and says, this is a continuing quotation regarding the Son. You, Lord, that's Jesus. You, Lord. 
laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You, the sun, will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? It's a question. God never said that to any angel, but he has said this regarding the Son. Talking of angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to, say, to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Yeah, that's their function. They had a high function, uh, an esteemed calling, but nothing like the calling of the Son of God. Verse 1 of chapter 2, Therefore, on the basis of all that's come before, the blazing glory of God, the blazing glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is full deity and he is unlike any angel. Don't be wrapped up in thinking so much about angels. You miss who Jesus is. See, God never said to any angel, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. The footstool is a reference to putting your feet on something. And in the ancient world, when a victorious commander or king overcame another nation, the head of the nation that was conquered would often be brought up stage, so to speak, and the victorious king would put his feet on the neck of the now captured defeated king and it was a sign to everyone of the supremacy of the king who was the conqueror now that would not be something that normally would happen in our day but that was true in the ancient world and what a message that is Jesus is reigning until he makes all his enemies a footstool and it will be seen publicly that the Lord Jesus Christ is the true conquering king. Every enemy will be made a footstool for his feet. Not true of angels. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Here's a message of warning. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received the just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You're hearing the message. You're hearing about Jesus. What have you done with the message? What have you done with Jesus? There's no escape. Notice verse 3 of chapter 2 is a question. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It's a question. The obvious answer is there'll be no escape. There is no escape. Jesus is God's last word. Reject this message. There is no hope. Don't neglect it. Don't drift away from what you've heard. Pay very, very close attention. Listen up. It, the message 
continuing in verse 3, was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The magnitude of the message is being stressed. Pay attention. Don't drift. Listen up. Don't be distracted. Look what God has done to affirm the fact that this message is ultimate. Verse 5, for it is not to angels that God subjected the world to come. You see, that's where Hebrews is taking us. You can't see it now, but no angel will be ruling in the world to come. But Jesus will be. He's the ruler now, and he will be forever. It's not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? For you made for a little while, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. That's the message of providence. Everything is under the control of the Lord Jesus. Everything. Nothing is outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's true. But we see him. That's right. Through the eyes of faith, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Talking of Christ in his earthly ministry. Namely, Jesus. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might Taste death for everyone. Who are the everyone? We spent some time on that. It's certainly true that Jesus tasted death for everyone. Everyone who? Well, it's the brothers. It's the sons. It's those he brings to glory. Every one of them. That's what's explained in the next few words. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist. Again, if you understand who Jesus is, there's nothing to go back to. There's no turning back. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist. Everything exists for Jesus and because of Jesus. In bringing many sons to glory, that's the everyone, every one of the many sons, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus died for the many sons. He tasted death for the many sons he's bringing to glory to make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering for He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them, who's the them, the many sons, brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. 
Can't help but think of John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 14, since therefore the children, again, the same theme. Who's the children? The many sons. Who are the children? The brothers. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, talking of Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Jesus didn't come to save and help angels. He didn't become an angel to save angels. He became a man to save men. Talking in the generic sense, men, women, boys, girls. He became fully human. He didn't become in any way angelic. Not a trace. Not even a 1%. uh, Coming into the angelic realm to become an angel to save angels. No. It was 100% for the sons of man. It's been well said, the son of God became the son of man, that the sons of men might become the sons of God. It's surely not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring, the seed of Abraham. That's who he came for, and he became one of them. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. You see, same theme, explaining who he tasted death for. These are the everyone. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of who? The people. It was said to Joseph by the angel in Matthew chapter 1, you'll call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. Well, did he? Yes, he did. That's what he came for. And we can look back and say, mission accomplished. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Chapter 3, verse 1, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, that's what you share in. That's what's available. That's what's being offered. That's what you share in if you're a partaker. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Hebrews 3 verse 1 is the first uh, real reckoning of Jesus as high priest. And we're going to see more of that. We saw it in chapter 2 verse 17. He's a faithful high priest. Now he is the high priest of our confession, of our saying the same thing. Homologia is the word confession. We say with our mouths what God says about Jesus. We say Jesus is Lord. That's our confession. And he's the one sent forth, the apostle and the high priest of our saying the same thing. Who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, you see what's happening here? Jesus is superior. Jesus is better than angels. And he's better than Moses. 
Now Moses is the biggest figure, I think without doubt, in the Old Testament. David's close, but Moses is the big one. Moses has, under God, brought us the first five books of the Old Testament. It was Moses that stood opposed to Pharaoh and with his staff worked wonders in the name of God as God did miracles and brought plagues and parted red, the Red Sea. I mean, come on, Moses was the man and Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. You hear what the Hebrew Christians, the professing Christians would have heard. There's nothing to go back. If you go back to Moses, do you understand how inferior he is? As blessed as he was, as anointed as he was, as used by God as he was, Jesus has been counted of more worthy glory, counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. Why do people pay exorbitant, extreme amounts of money for a painting? It's because of the painter. Oh, this was, this was painted by Picasso. This was painted by Monet. Monet, what a great painter. He's painted this. And, and when someone buys this painting, it's because of the honor due to the painter in their minds. It's a question whether any painting is worth the crazy prices the paintings go for, but that's the message. And Moses was a servant in the house, but Jesus is the builder of the house. Oh. <laughs> I'm about to get into that sermon, but I can't. I've got to move on. Thankfully, it's available. You can hear it. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Let it be said, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ, see the contrast? Moses was great. Moses was used by God, but Christ is a superior a superior man, a superior, he's the God-man. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Not merely a servant, he was a son in the house and the builder of the house. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Some people look at this verse and say, well, you can lose salvation. Look at that. If indeed we hold fast, if we don't hold fast, we'll lose our salvation. No, that's to misunderstand the nature of the faith that God gives. When God gives us true saving faith, it's not a temporary glance at Christ. It's an eternal delight in Christ. And we will keep the faith because that's the nature of the faith that God gives us. And if we've got the real thing, we'll hold fast. And so it's absolutely right what is said here. If indeed we hold fast, because that's the nature of true saving faith. When God starts the work, the work in a man, he completes it. That's why Paul could write in Philippians 1 verse 6, For I'm confident of this very thing, that he that has begun, he who has begun this great work, 
he that has begun this work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even our faith is God's gift. Therefore, verse 7, as the Holy Spirit says, we spent some time on that. He now quotes the Old Testament and says, the Holy Spirit says this. Not he said, past tense this, but he says this. Anytime you're reading the Bible, God is speaking to you. As the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. and They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The author is using the events known to the people of Israel regarding the history of Israel. The 40 years in the desert where an entire generation did not go into the promised land. Not by luck, not because they somehow slightly missed out. No, God swore they're not going in. That generation of unbelief, only two of a certain age entered in, Joshua and Caleb. Everybody else died in the wilderness. Should have been a two-week journey, but after 40 years, they entered in. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. See, it's a sermon. Let there not be any of you under the sound of my voice, a preacher might say today, Let not there be any of you succumbing to an evil, unbelieving heart. Unbelief is evil. It's a moral issue more than it's an intellectual issue. An evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Your professors, your professors of Christ, your professors of the Messiah, but the temptation is there. Go back, go back, go back, go back. You'll be well with you. You'll keep your job. You'll keep your standing in the community. You'll be able to provide for your children. This is where the rubber meets the road. Who's the true Christian? So beware. But exhort one another daily, every day, every day, every day. Christian, you need the body of Christ Not just once a month, but every day. There's this ongoing need for exhortation. And it's a corporate thing. Christianity is not an individual track towards God. It's a corporate venture called Operation Sanctification where we need the body of Christ around us. And we need to encourage our brothers and sisters. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that None of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It looks like there's gain in not following Jesus. All you have to do is say, Jesus isn't the Messiah, and the synagogue will let you in. Don't do it. That's evil. It's unbelieving. Cause you to fall away from this profession of faith in Jesus, and you'll lose everything. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That's exactly what I believe. 
We've got the real thing. We've shared in Christ. We've come to share in Christ. If our original confidence in Christ is held firm to the end. There's a saying, the faith that fizzles was flawed from the start. 1 John 2.19 tells us, They went out from us, but they were never of us. For if they were of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out to show forth the fact they were never of us. Verse 15, as it said, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What God said to them, he's saying to you, Today, if you hear his voice and you're hearing it now, don't harden your hearts as the rebellious did. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Yeah. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? None. A, a series of questions here. Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Yes, it was. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedience? Disobedient. Yes, that, that's exactly the case. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And the message is, don't let that be true of you. Chapter 4, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Check yourself. Listen up. Pay attention. Don't drift from the message. And if there's anyone, any of you, that have not entered into the rest of God, wake up and enter. Believe on the Lord Jesus. And look what verse 2 says, For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Verse 3 is so important. For we who have believed enter that rest. We enter what was in physical terms the promised land. We've entered the land of promises. We've entered the place where we enjoy the rest of God. God swore, those people will not enter my rest, but the believing will. For we who have believed, have you believed? Have you repented? Have you believed in Jesus Christ? If not, don't waste another moment. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. For we have believed, enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Don't let that be true of you. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, we're called upon to enter into a finished work of the Lord Jesus. Just as God rested on the seventh day in the book of Genesis, so God has rested from from the work of salvation in the sense that Jesus was able to say, it's finished, it's over, it's done. Enter into the rest of God now. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, speaking of Genesis, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. We're called to enter into the finished work of Christ. It's a finished work. Everything in the Old Testament was unfinished. Don't go back. Don't go back. There's nothing to go back to. Verse 5, and again in this passage, 
he said, they shall not enter my rest. There's repetition here because God is making the point through the author, through the writer. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. The word there means unbelief or disobedience. It's refusing to be persuaded. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today. You've got no promise of tomorrow. Today. What have you done with Jesus Christ? Today. Listen up. Saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You see how it sounds like a sermon? He's repeating himself. Get this. Get this. Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, Jesus already has been seen to be superior to angels, superior to Moses. Now he's superior to Joshua, the one who did bring them in to the promised land. Joshua brought them in. Yeshua is how you would say his name in Hebrew. And there's another Yeshua, the Lord Jesus For if Joshua had given them rest, although he brought them into the land, they still had their enemies. God would not have spoken of another day later on. And so even what Joshua was able to bring people into was not the ultimate rest. There's another day coming. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For who... (coughs) Excuse me, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. How do we do that? By believing. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What a message. You're hearing his voice, don't harden your heart. You're hearing his voice, don't harden your heart. Know this, living for the word of God is, that's the word order in the original for verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. The message here is, The word of God is the sharp scalpel. There's nothing as sharp on planet earth as the two-edged sword of God's word. And it goes wherever God intends. That's the message. It's not giving you a litany of the composite parts of man. It's just saying wherever God's word needs to go, it'll get there. It's living. It's active. It's alive. It's energetic. And it's sharp so sharp, it pierces and goes wherever God wills it to go. Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You may look real, you may look good, but the word of God will expose everything. And no creature is hidden from his sight. The word of God, his. Do you notice that? Not the word of God, it. No creature is hidden from its sight. No, 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 no. 
when you're dealing with the Word of God, you're dealing with God himself. And when the Word of God goes forth, the God of the Word goes forth, and no creature is hidden from his sight. But everything's naked. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Hold on. I'm using something right now, a music stand, to uh, hold up the Bible I'm reading from, and I'm putting my hands around it, and I'm holding on fast. That's the message. Hold on. Don't let go. It might get turbulent. Hold on. May not look good in this world. Hold on. Others around you seem to be blessed more than you and they're not following Jesus. Hold on. Hold fast our confession. What you say about Jesus, hold on to it. Don't give it up for anything. Don't give it up. Don't go back. Hold fast our confession. Jesus is Lord. Why? We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was unblemished, yet was without sin. And Let us then with confidence, with boldness of speech, draw near to the throne of grace. It's a throne not of judgment, not now, there will be a throne of judgment, but right now, come to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's the one throne, but in this time, grace is extended. But grace is not infinite. There will be a time when the door of grace is closed and everything else then becomes judgment. As Hebrews will go on to tell us, Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed for men to die once and after this, the judgment. Draw near with confidence, boldness of speech, to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a message preparing us for chapter 5 and will, Lord willing, be very much edified as we go forward in the book of Hebrews. But to hear what we've heard so far is a message. Jesus Christ is the ultimate, the ultimate word. He's the ultimate apostle. He's the ultimate high priest. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. And believe in him. You enter into rest. Don't give up that message for anything. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We ask that you'd write these truths indelibly on all our hearts. That the faith we profess will truly be possessed. We ask it in Jesus' name.